Well, good morning. Thanks to Matt for that reading of our scripture for this morning. We will be in Ephesians chapter 4. If you'd like to turn there now with me, we'll be preaching today out of that message, out of that text which Matt just read for us. And we will conclude with this message from Ephesians 4, our series in the seven deadly sins, the reminder that one is greater than seven. The cross of Christ that we just sang about, that our God is able, is far, far greater than all of our temptations. We've been trying to reinforce that over the course of these past seven or eight weeks as we've looked at the temptations that are common to us all and the promise of the scriptures that no matter what the temptation, our God will provide a way out. Today we'll close with a study of anger and its remedy. Parents, I wonder if you've ever had the experience of your child or grandparents, maybe you've had experience of a grandchild asking you the question, is so-and-so a good guy or a bad guy? Have you had that experience? Is uncle so-and-so, is this guy in the neighborhood who seems to be in trouble with the law, is he a good guy or a bad guy? I've had that experience with my kids already. It's a good question that summarizes well the declaration of the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther who declared simply that followers of Christ are yet at the same time both sinner and saint. At the same time. And kids get at that to some degree when they naturally seek to categorize people according to good guy category or bad guy category. Or princess versus witch. Superhero or nemesis. Friend or stranger. Good guy or bad guy. And perhaps you've had that question from a child and you've explained, well, uncle so-and-so is a good guy in this sense. He's been redeemed by the blood of Christ and he's been forgiven of all the bad things that he's done and uh, Christ paid for all those sins that he committed and he now has the Holy Spirit in him but he still has to go to jail because he did something that was really bad. So, yeah, there you go, son. To which your son looks up at you quizzically like, what are you talking about? Or maybe your son just gets it, your daughter just gets it and she responds, so what you're saying, dad, is uh, she's a good girl, bad girl. He's a good guy, bad guy. And you'd say, yeah, that's exactly it. Good guy and a bad guy. Saint and a sinner. Which is exactly what Matt just read for us from Ephesians 4. You look at these two verses, 22 and 24. It says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. The old self that is still in you that you have to actively put off and instead put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There's an old self that is still there for all of us. A sinner. A bad guy. A bad girl. That we have to actively put off and a new self that we must actively put on. That saint. That good guy. That superhero if you will. 
created to be like God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I find this back and forth of good guy, bad guy, saint, sinner, to be particularly prevalent when it comes to today's deadly sin called anger. Anyone else? I mean, we have an ability with anger to be calm and peaceful and serene in one moment, and in almost the next moment we flip a switch or we light a match and anger is on fire. We go to church for the worship and the rich connections with friends and we raise our hands to God and if we're not careful we can get into the car and we can start yelling at the kids. And um, we can come to church and we can bless God with our mouth. We can sing praises to God and if we're not careful we can curse those made in the image of God. James, the half-brother of Jesus, mentioned in James chapter 3. It's with the same mouth that we bless God and curse those made in the image of God, especially, it seems, during election season. It's really helpful for us, I think, to get a mental portrait of what happens to us when anger begins to bubble up in our hearts. And so I'd like to do just a little bit of audience participation with you, if you will. Do you like audience participation with me? A few nervous giggles and a lot of silence tells it all. I, I like audience participation, so I'm going to do it from time to time whether you like it or not, okay? So just get used to it. What we're going to do is create a little mental portrait with some common phrases that speak to the issue of anger. And so you'll see these phrases on the screen one by one, and I'm going to ask you to fill in the blank for me as we seek to develop a mental portrait of anger gone wrong. All right, so here, here's the first one. I say the phrase, and you fill it in. He's blown a, a gasket, right. Uh, um, there's an engine that's about to go on fire, okay? He, he is so overheated, he blew a gasket in the engine. He's lost his, his, his mind, okay, what else did I hear? <laughs> These were not quite as intuitive as I thought they were. <laughs> He's lost his Cool, okay, all right. Next one, uh, he's hot under the, he's hot under the collar. I mean, you can see this in people, can't you? That they get upset and their neck starts to get red. They start to sweat and their neck, be, their, their neck begins to get pink and red and you realize don't go in their presence. He's hot under the collar right now. Last one, what, what color is anger? Yeah, quite obviously, it's red. Now the sad thing is anger is on the increase. There is no question about it. A anger is, is encouraged today, perhaps even prized today. You need only read the newspaper one day. You need only watch the news one day, and you see the anger is prized today. It's encouraged, and people are bubbling up, keeping the storehouse of anger in them. I don't see this bumper sticker very often here in Kearney, but I used to see it all the time where I used to live. If you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. Now, that, that's used to say, get excited about some things. I get the motivation behind that, but there's so much danger in that for our own hearts. I mean, the cardiovascular damage it does to us to constantly be outraged. The ulcers that it causes us and other people, I might add, to constantly be outraged. You think about the number of athletes who have been steamrolled by their outraged coaches. You think about the number of 
husbands that have been steamrolled by their outraged wives, and the number of wives who have been steamrolled by their outraged husbands. You think about the number of kids who have been steamrolled by outraged parents. Many of us are just living with a suitcase full of anger, and the Bible tells us simply, it need not be so. We don't have to live with the storehouse of anger that we are constantly hot on the, under the collar, getting ready to blow a gasket. Because we're new creations, as that passage just told us. We're created in the likeness of Christ Jesus to take on the new life, created in righteousness and holiness, that we can put off the old self and put on the new self, created to be like Christ, who was tender-hearted and gentle. And he had control over his emotions, control over his anger, such that when he expressed his anger, it was always clean anger. It was always a righteous form of anger. We'll talk about that in a moment. We live in the kingdom of God, my friends, in which we have different resources at our disposal than normal men and women do. With the power of the Holy Spirit, we have different resources at our disposal than other people do. We don't live in the kingdom of the world anymore where all we can do is try to control our anger. We live in the kingdom of God in which Christ reigns. And if he reigns, he can help us control our anger that we can put it aside and we can react in a different way than other people react. There is hope for us to be different because we have one named Jesus Christ who is at the right hand of the almighty God and he is fighting for us to gain victory in this area. Now, wh where does anger come from? I think it's helpful for, to for us to understand the roots of our anger. And I would say anger is kind of baked up in the heart through a combination of three ingredients. If you're following along, your outline only says two ingredients. Between Wednesday when I turned in the outline, that became two to three ingredients now. Three ingredients cook up anger in the heart. Fear, unmet expectations, and control. A need to be in control, more precisely. And these are cooked up in the heart, not in our actions. They begin right here, which Jesus, of course, addresses in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And isn't it interesting that the very first words of his most famous Sermon on the Mount, when he begins to go into instruction mode for people, the first issue that he addresses with respect to the heart is anger. And he says this in Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Obviously, wonderful prescription from the Ten Commandments. But Jesus goes even deeper. And he says, you've heard this said in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, don't murder. But I say to you, go even deeper to the level of the heart. Anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You see, Jesus is addressing the reality that many people are only concerned with external righteousness. You know these people, right? They're only concerned with the external things like do not commit adultery and do not commit uh, do not uh, murder and do not lie and uh, look at all the things that I do not do. But Jesus says, no, you must go deeper if you want true righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the religious leaders. If you want righteousness that goes beyond that, you're looking for the righteousness of the heart because 
Here is the truth. Attitude always precedes action. Doesn't it? And so Jesus addresses the heart. Attitude always precedes action. So he goes to the level of the heart. He's saying here that when the heart is full of anger, when the heart is full of hate, it's not far from being the kind of heart that would hurt people if it could get away with it. Many, many more people would hurt others if they could just get away with it. Because people are walking around with the store of anger that originates in the heart, and it's baked up through these three very common ingredients, unmet expectations, fear, and a loss of control. Imagine with me for a moment that you are meeting an old friend for breakfast tomorrow at 7 a.m., and you have this date on the calendar, you've had it there, and you've been looking forward to it for the past couple months, and 7.15 rolls around, and she's still not at the breakfast table with you. And your coffee is now getting cold, and your collar's getting hot, because she's not there. And you start to go through a series of narratives in your mind, and you begin to say to yourself, I guess I'm just not all that important to her. Maybe she forgot about me. I must not really matter to her. She always does this. I remember back in 1986 that she did this to me as well. She's always late for meetings. And then maybe you begin to develop a little speech for her, how you give her a piece of your mind and how you'll kind of correct her and teach her a thing or two if she's to walk in here because you're not going to be able to have a nice relaxed conversation anymore since you're going to have to rush into work. And then all of a sudden she walks in there at 7.20 and you notice as she walks in there's a bump on her head. And she sits down and she says, I'm so sorry that I'm late and I got a little fender bender before I, I got here and I got here as fast as I possibly could and I, I'm okay but I did hit my head on the steering wheel and I'm so sorry I'm late. Th th then what happens to your anger in that moment? It immediately vanishes. And the reason it vanishes is you realize your fears and your sense of loss of control were uh, not reality. And so it's replaced in that moment with something different, like sympathy and care and concern and compassion. And the reason I give that little uh, pretend scenario is because all of that happened in a few moments at the level of the heart. It all begins at the level of the heart. All of our reactions begin at the level of our heart. And so we must tend to our hearts because a mildly annoying, unmet expectation like that one turns into this fear that I have lost control, that I really don't matter, and now I'm ticked off. And it happens like this for us all the time with friends, and co-workers, and neighbors, and people in our life groups, and our families, and our families, and our families. It happens like this all the time. And then all of a sudden, we're left with this, again, storehouse, this luggage full of anger. And we're taking on these false beliefs that things have to go just the way I want them to go. And my husband needs to act just the way I want him to act. And I need to be perfect all the time. And this wedding needs to be perfect. And the office must always be a fair and just and equitable place. 
And how's that working out for you? And I thought he was a different kind of guy when I married him. I thought he was much more of a stud than he is now. And he thought you were a different kind of gal when he married you. Nervous laughter. Yeah, this is the reality. Unmet expectations. Expectations are dashed in life all the time. And it produces in us this fear of a loss of control and disappointment. I know that there are many people, perhaps even here in this room today, that cannot imagine living without anger. But I want you to hear that it is possible. As we tend to our hearts, it is possible to live without anger. And the reason I know that is because Jesus says so. And Jesus wouldn't invite us to live without anger unless it was actually possible for us to do so. So before we look at a couple applications for how to deal with our anger, let's just acknowledge the difference between God's anger and man's anger. Even the most cursory reading of the Bible will reveal to us that God gets angry about some things, doesn't he? He gets angry over injustice. He gets angry over his name being violated. He gets angry when uh, people are violated or treated in an unjust manner. He gets angry when his word is trivialized. He gets angry when we disobey him. And we also likewise might experience some anger over similar concerns. And to the extent that that would motivate us to do something, to work toward pursuing righteousness, that can be a good thing. I think that can be a very good thing for us. And this is what the Apostle Paul is saying for us in the passage this morning, which he says, in your anger, do not sin. He's saying, not all anger is sin. And just as, it's not, just as it's not necessarily a sin to be tempted, as we talked about last week, that those two things are not equal, sin and temptation are not the same thing, you can experience temptation and not fall into sin, so also you can experience anger and not fall into sin. That's possible when we have a righteous form of anger. Now that said, I have to warn us all that many people take this verse, 26, be angry but do not sin, and they use it as a justification for their own anger, as a justification for always feeling wronged, that my hamburger wasn't cooked the right way, or that the cap wasn't put on the toothpaste again, or whatever it is, and you feel this constant sense of self-justification that I'm not getting what I want, when I want it, the way I want it, and that is when anger turns into pride's violent child. When we turn from being angry about the things that God is actually angry about to being angry about the things that I'm just not getting exactly what I want, and I should be always getting, this, this world exists for me always to get exactly what I want. Comedian George Carlin once asked, have you ever noticed that anybody going slower than you is an idiot on the road, and anybody going faster than you is a maniac? What's the common denominator? It's me, myself, and I. Okay? Again, anger is the violent child of pride. The truth is that just about anything that can be done with anger by us humans can be done much better without anger. Let me say that again. Just about anything that we can do with anger, we could do much better without anger. 
Have you had the experience of disciplining your child in anger? How'd that go? Have you had the experience of bringing up an issue in your marriage when you're angry about that issue? Have you had the experience of entering into a political debate when you're boiling with anger? Again, how'd that debate go? Have you had the experience of entering a religious discussion with someone who disagrees with your faith and you're angry at them and they're angry at you? I've had all of those experiences and I will tell you, they never go well. Because anything that can be done with anger can be done much better without anger. So we're wise to listen to Paul's statement here. Be angry over the things that God would get angry about, but don't sin in that anger. And it's very easy for that anger to turn into sin, so we need to pause and step back from it and frequently breathe and count to five or count to 500 if necessary. Be angry and do not sin. He goes on to say, do not let the sun go down in your anger and do not let the enemy, do not give the devil an opportunity. Give no opportunity to the devil in your anger. Don't miss the meaning of these two verses. What Paul's whispering here is that when anger rots within us, it gives the enemy a place in our lives and after giving the enemy a place in our lives, it becomes this awful, deadly disease in us. When anger rots within us, it gives the enemy a place and it becomes a deadly disease. It's that powerful. So don't let the sun go down in your anger. Paul's saying, we deal with our anger as quickly as we possibly can. Now, are you able to always deal with your anger prior to bedtime? Be honest. No, we aren't. And I think we get help here from uh, an understanding of genre in the scripture. Paul is again speaking proverbially, proverbially. He's not giving another legalism that says you must deal with anger before you go to bed and if you don't, you're a substandard Christian. Don't take on that. That's just another form of legalism. What he's saying is deal with anger as quickly as you possibly can. And if you're the kind of person in a marriage that you can deal with anger before you go to bed, then by all means do that. But if you're not that kind of person that you need to process through it for a day or two, anyone? That you need to process through your emotions for a day or two before you bring them back up again, then put it on the calendar. Tonight before you go to bed, if you're angry with your spouse, put it on the calendar. Honey, can we talk about this in the next couple days? Because if you don't, then it'll simmer over the course of a week or two weeks or a month. And then it will give the devil an opportunity in your lives. This is the warning. And we all have seen this. Now, I, I gotta say, there are some things that we think are a big deal that in fact we just need to drop. Okay, but be real careful about what things you're angry about that you actually bring up. Some things that are just mere preferences and pet peeves and differences of opinion, they need to be dropped. And I brought a little prop up here for me to preach to myself. Adrian, some things you just need to drop. Adrian, some of your pet peeves don't need to be brought up. Adrian, in the words of the great theologians, Elsa and Anna and Olaf, sometimes you just need to let it go, let it go. Please join me up here, let it go. Your turn now. 
let it go. Let it, some things you just got to let go, friends. I was going to sing it to you, but I love you. <laughs> and I don't want that song in your mind or my voice. Some things we just have to let go. They don't matter. It ain't worth it. To be that type A personality, which I am, and constantly bring up little stuff gives you and others ulcers. Now, of course, there are times that you do have to bring it up. And occasionally, some issue deserves a real conversation and a conflict resolution. And so when you're in that place and you've been dealing with this, you've been feeling the anger for a couple days, deal with it as quickly as you possibly can, Paul is saying. Don't let it sit there because it turns into bitterness and wrath and malice and slander and all of that, that disease and grudges. Deal with it quickly, he is saying, because it gives the devil an opportunity. The word there for opportunity is tapos in the Greek, topos. And topos in the Greek means place or footing. So what it does when you give the devil an opportunity, when you give the devil a place, when you give the devil a footing, is you're giving the devil a foothold in your life, which means you're surrendering control to the enemy because of this rage within you. Or you're giving the enemy an opportunity to reign in your belly, a place, or to reign on your shoulders, or to reign in this headache, or to reign in your heart. It's to give the enemy a place in your life that he has no business being there. That place is for the Lord. And this is the power of anger. It gives the enemy a place where he has no place to be. Now, anger is just such a beast. Uh, it's, uh, it's like that old whack-a-mole game. Remember whack-a-mole at the arcade? You, you think you've, you've whacked all those moles and then one more pops up? That's anger. Or it's like those trick candles. Susie, don't ever put trick candles on my birthday cake. <laughs> you know, you think you've blown them all out? All right, let's eat the birthday cake. And one more lights up. That's anger. It's, it's just a beast that we have to constantly stay vigilant with at the level of our hearts. And so a godly move is to deal with it as quickly as we possibly can, to deal with that mole before it pops up yet again. You feel anger with someone, make the courageous first step and have a conversation with them. Talk through the disappointment that you feel. I, I mean, that's a healthy and normal part of life. You feel disappointment with each other in your life group, you got to talk through it. That's a courageous, bold, Christian move. You feel disappointment with a coworker, be, be, be the mature person that brings it up first and says, hey, can we just sit down and, and putting aside all anger, can we talk through this? And if you don't do that, guess who becomes the prisoner? It's you. The enemy gets a foothold and you become the prisoner of the enemy because you're not willing to deal with anger. We deal with anger sometimes by letting little things go we deal with anger sometimes by having the hard conversations that nobody wants to have but enables us to actually deal with it and uh, resolve the conflict as opposed to allowing it to simmer and result in that disease of bitterness and wrath and grudges and malice and all of those things listed in verse 31. 
And then finally, we forgive. These three applications. Some things we have to let go. Some things we have to deal with with a very hard conversation. And sometimes we know that we simply have to forgive wrongs that have been done to us. Isn't it interesting that Paul, in his discussion, this is his, his lengthiest treatise on anger in the New Testament. And at the end of his lengthiest treatise on anger, he concludes with forgiveness. Verse 32 says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about forgiveness here except to say that we as Christians, once again, have a different reservoir of ability than normal people do. And we are able to forgive because we know how much we have been forgiven by Christ. And as we lean into Christ on a day-in and day-out basis, that gives us a newfound capacity to forgive others who are mostly in the wrong. You, you, you could identify some relationship right now that you'd say, I'm 10% in the wrong, and he is 90% in the wrong. And you could go to that person, and you could say, I am sorry for my peace in this conflict. Don't bring up the fact that you're 10% in the wrong, and he's 90% in the wrong. Don't do that. That won't help. But go to that person and say, I am partly in the wrong for this. I recognize that. W would you please forgive me? That is a godly Christian move which God will always bless in your life and use it to help release that devil of anger. Friends, this is for us. This is a big piece of what God would give to us as the remedy for this common malady that many of us struggle with. And so we go to him on a day in and day out basis and we just remind ourselves every single day of how much we've been forgiven. And living out of that, God, would you grant me a newfound capacity to forgive those who have hurt me, to go out of my way to get right with those that I'm not right with. God, would you help me? Let's do this as we close out this series. We know that we've only just begun, but I'm gonna ask the worship team to come forward right now. And as we close out this series, I'd like to ask you if you'd stand with me. And we're gonna finish this series, remind ourselves of this verse that we've talked about over and over again across the last eight or nine weeks, that there is one that is far greater than all of our temptations. And this promise comes to us again from 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 and 13. And we're just beginning the battle, aren't we? All of us is just beginning the battle. None of us has gained complete victory over any of our temptations. We look up at this passage and we remember that whenever we are tempted, our God will provide a way out. Our God is faithful to provide a way out for us whenever we are tempted. And so we're just beginning the battle today as we go forward in the summer and as we look forward to more and more life in his kingdom, more and more control over our temptations. But we look up at this passage and I'd like to ask you to read it with me and then we're gonna sing to the God who is victorious. But would you read with me this great promise that our God will always provide a way out. Would you join me? Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Can you endure it? 
Is there a way of escape? Will your God help you? He is able to provide a way out of any temptation. Our God is faithful. Let's sing to him.